Father, we are grateful to culminate a, a week, a, a holiday of Thanksgiving with worship here this morning. You are worthy of, of worship. You are worthy of our thanksgiving because of all the blessings that you've given us. Paramount among them, Father, this that we have been singing about in the last few moments. That you are a God who through the death of your Son has brought sinners who hated you from death into life. From darkness into light. And we, we pray, Father, that as we study your scriptures together this morning, that your Holy Spirit would help us to, to come to an even deeper understanding of these things. For some of us to come to understanding for the first time. And that all of us, Father, would rejoice in the truth that you are a God who has promised long ago to bring the dead to life. and To do that through the blood of your Son. Help us to understand these things. Help us to live in light of them. Please give us insight into what it would mean to live in light of these things. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. This morning we'll be focusing on verses 7 through 13, but I'd like to read the whole chapter. So if you would stand with me as you're finding your place there, we'll begin reading in chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful upon their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You may be seated. A number of years ago, there was a man on the subway in New York City. This was 2006. He was, he was sitting up on the train. He appeared to be sleeping. He was kind of slumped over, peaceful. It turned out that he was actually dead. He had gotten off of work just after midnight. His commute home was only 35 minutes. So he gets off just after midnight, commute home 35 minutes. He wasn't noticed as being dead until 7 o'clock that morning. So the authorities theorized that he had died on the train before he got to his stop and his body rode undiscovered for about six hours. 
Now, public transportation in New York City never sleeps, so it's not that no one was around this guy for, for all of that time, but rather passengers were sitting next to him, many of them over the course of, of that night, riding all night with a dead man without suspecting anything amiss, without realizing how close death was to them, death right beside them, and they just went about their business thinking that this was a man just going about his business. The Bible teaches that death is closer than than we even think. Certainly we're all going to die one day. But it's even closer in another sense. We do life next to dead people all the time. We likely all have dead co-workers. We have dead neighbors. It's possible there are dead people here this morning. People dead in their trespasses and sins. People appearing to do what living people do, but they are in a very profound sense dead. And and they've even been declared dead. The the great coroner, we might say, who, who declared them dead was Moses. The old covenant law that's been mentioned here in the passage that we just read It declared man spiritually dead by giving him laws and demonstrating that no matter what incentive he's given, no matter what threat is brought to him, no matter what, he cannot obey those laws, nor does he want to. He's unable to do what living people do, which is to love God, enjoy God, serve God, know God. In fact, death is, according to the Bible, it is separation from God. And among these dead people, we all once walked. We were all once dead in our trespasses and sins. And what caused us to pass from death death to life was, was not the law of Moses. Because the law could only declare us dead. The law could not do what we needed most, which was to bring us to life, to bring us to God. And that some of us are alive today, having been formerly spiritually dead, is because God promised a new covenant. Something to come and replace the old covenant and its, its law. A covenant that not only declared death, but a covenant that kills death and gives life to all who have faith in Christ. The new covenant in Christ's blood is the only thing that can bring a dead person to life. I would call your attention again to verse 6 that we just read. This is from the passage we looked at last week. Verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on Better promises. And it's, it's our privilege this morning to consider that we have a new covenant better than the old and why it's better than the old. It's better because of promises that are explicated in this text. The first thing that the, the author of Hebrews wants to communicate to us in verses 7-13 through 13 is this. The arrival of the new covenant shows the inadequacy of the old covenant. The arrival of the new covenant, the new covenant in Christ's blood, it shows the inadequacy of the old covenant, the law, everything associated with that that old covenant. Look with me again at verse 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If the first covenant, the the law of Moses, if that old covenant had been addressing, truly addressing, truly fixing man's biggest problem, well, that covenant would still be around. There would be no reason for God to promise another covenant. But if the old is being replaced, that means that there's something faulty about it. And the argumentation that the author is using here, he used the same kind of argument when he was talking about the priesthood back in chapter 7. You could scroll back to, 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 to chapter 7, verse 11, and, and look there with me now. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? 
rather than one named after the order of Aaron. And you'll remember that in chapter 7 then, the, the author was arguing, why would God promise a priest like Jesus if there was nothing wrong with the, the old covenant Levitical priesthood? He's saying that, that a new thing has come indicates there's something that, that the old couldn't do. And he's making that similar argument now with, with the covenants. That the new covenant has come indicates that there is something inadequate about the old covenant. Now, where is, where is the author of Hebrews getting this? The, the, the idea that the new covenant replaces the old covenant. Well, he gets it from the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. In your own personal Bible reading this week, I would encourage you to read. You could read all of Jeremiah. That would not be a waste of time. But you could read chapters 30 through 33 and get a great flavor for what surrounds this promise in that prophecy. The author of Hebrews quotes this Old Testament promise from Jeremiah 31 to validate the idea that the new covenant, the coming of the new covenant, it shows the inadequacy of the old covenant. The Jeremiah quotation shows what was wrong with the old covenant and why the new covenant is better. And that leads us to the second thing that the author wants to put in front of us, and that is that the old covenant, it exposed dead hearts. The old covenant exposed dead hearts. And certainly that's not a bad thing. That, that is a good thing. But it was not sufficient to address the problem that it diagnosed for us. Man needed more than the old covenant. Look, look at verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says. And we'll stop right there. You can glance back up at verse 7 and see in verse 7 that the author implied that there's something faulty about the old, the old covenant. What was the problem with the old covenant? Well, that's not inherently wrong. There's nothing inherently evil about the old covenant and its law. Nothing like that. The law was based upon the very character of God, which is perfect. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 7 that the law is, is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And, and if we were to go back to the Psalms, we could pick out Psalms like 19 and 119. And, and we would get a picture of the law of God is something do, delightful. But it's delightful to those who are spiritually alive. Verse 8 here in Hebrews 8 signals what the problem is. In verse 7 he wrote, if the first covenant was faultless, there would be no need to look for a second. Faultless there in verse 7 is the same root that's used in verse 8 when he said, he finds fault with them when he says. And so what we're seeing here is that this, this old covenant is faulty. What's faulty about it? It leaves people in their fault. God finds fault with the people, indicating that's what's faulty with the Old Covenant. It can't take people's faults away. It can't make them faultless. And so a new covenant was needed. Turn, turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. I, I know that some of you use the cross-references in, in our sermons on Sunday mornings to supplement your personal reading during the week. It's so in addition to Jeremiah 30 through 33, you could add Deuteronomy. If you, if you don't have time for all of Deuteronomy, you might, you might read just 26 through 30 would be we, some great context here. But, but we find in Deuteronomy 27 through 29 that God explained through Moses how this old covenant was supposed to work, how, how it's designed. What it's designed to do, okay? And it's summarized in chapter 30, verses 15 through 20. So look with me at Deuteronomy 30, 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life 
and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice, and holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days. I put before you life and death. If you want life, love me, obey me, worship me alone. If you want death, don't listen, don't obey, don't worship me. Just go your own way. That's how the Old Covenant worked. It puts before man life and death. You obey and you enjoy life and blessings of the land. If you disobey, then you will be served with death and curses. Okay. Now, bringing that Old Testament context with us, let's go back to Hebrews and pick up with this quotation from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And he's talking about the old covenant from which we've just read laws from that covenant in Deuteronomy 30. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Now given what we've seen about the old covenant in Deuteronomy, we might be tempted to think of the Old Covenant as kind of a legalistic covenant of works, but that would actually be a mistake. The Old Covenant is also a covenant of grace. God's gracious redemption of the people of Egypt, that came first. It came before God gave the law. He saved them first, saved them from slavery. The call to to keep the law as part of the Sinai Covenant, that came after He saved them from slavery. So it was not a, a legalistic earn my love, earn my blessings. This is how you remain in the covenant is by obeying the law and, and loving God with all your heart. The whole thing was gracious. God did not have to save the people from Egypt. He did that on the basis of His own gracious will. Now, though it was not a legalistic covenant, the people still had to keep it in order to be blessed, as I've I've just mentioned. But by the time Jeremiah wrote what has just been quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, the people had long since demonstrated that they chose death over life. They chose disobedience over obedience. Curses over blessings. Because he says here in, in Hebrews 8, for they did not abide in my covenant. It's a more literal way to render it. They did not abide in my covenant. They disobeyed over and over. And so as warned, God turned away from them. God turning away from a person, God turning away from a people is the worst of curses that can come upon someone. So the the old covenant, in, in the end, what did it accomplish for the people of Israel? And what does it now accomplish for those who are are not even Jewish? All Gentiles, what does it accomplish? It exposes dead hearts. And and Moses was up front about this. Listen to Deuteronomy 29.4. Deuteronomy 29.4 reads this way, But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. And that tells us two things. First of all, man's heart in its fallen state is incapable of being faithful to God. And the second thing indicated by Deuteronomy 29.4 is that only God can fix that condition. Now, both of those things are really good to know. That the, the fallen human heart is incapable of being faithful to God and only God can fix that. These are great things to know. The problem is that the Old Covenant itself did nothing to fix the problem. It did nothing to change the heart. It left people dead in their trespasses and sins. That's why a new covenant was needed. The old covenant, it exposed dead hearts. But third, the new covenant gives life. The new covenant gives life. Look with me now at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Just very quickly, some some might wonder, why do do we talk about this 
covenant like we have anything to do with it as Gentiles because as he's quoted it here, this is a covenant that God is, God is going to make with the house of Israel after those days. So how, how can we as Gentiles, how can we talk like we're partakers of this covenant? Very simple answer, all right? And you could go into more depth with this. I'll tell you how in a few minutes. But the very simple answer is that we have become recipients of all the promises by faith in Christ. The New Testament authors, they repeatedly note the, the church of Jesus Christ as the recipients of the promises. All the promises made to God's people. We are recipients of those because we have trusted in Christ. And Paul goes so far then as to call the church the Israel of God in Galatians chapter 6. So that is why we would say we are partakers of the, the new covenant. If you would like to go deeper into all of that, about how inclusion in the promises, going all the way back to the beginning, that those are through faith in Jesus. If you, a couple of places that you could spend some time would be Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 11. You, you could get a running start at Romans chapter 11 by backing up to chapter 9. So 4, Romans 4, then 9 through 11. Now here, this, this Jeremiah quotation, it gives us four things that make the new covenant distinct and better than the old. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to give you what those four things are. They're, they're right on the surface of the text. So there's, there, there's no interpretational voodoo here. But what I want you to be thinking about after this morning as you're talking with, with your family today, as, you, as you're interacting with other believers throughout the week, use these four things as topics of discussion. And what I would encourage you to do is to use these things to, to think through together how we can live in light of this new covenant. How we can rejoice in these promises of the new covenant. I'm going to give you an example or two for each one of these, but I encourage those to just be a springboard for your own conversations with one another. The first thing that the old covenant does is that it inclines the heart toward obedience. It inclines the heart toward obedience. Continuing in verse 10, he writes, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Remember that Deuteronomy 29 told the people that the Lord hadn't given them hearts to, to believe, to understand, to obey. Well, listen to this promise. This is one chapter later in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. In other words, even the Old Covenant, when we read Deuteronomy, we're reading Old Covenant, the Law of Moses, even the Old Covenant forecasted something better than itself. A time when God would fix the heart problem of the people. Pastor John read from Ezekiel 36 for us this morning. And if we hold that in parallel with Jeremiah 31, we find these things, these things connected, this this. This giving of the law, writing it on our minds and on our hearts, this is part of God bringing us to life and giving us new hearts. We, we, we talk about this in terms of regeneration. Dead people going from death to life. And in Ezekiel, the, pro, the prophet promised that God would remove our heart of stone. That's a heart of rebellion, a, a heart that hates God, only wants to rebel against Him. God in the new covenant, He removes that heart and He replaces it with a heart of flesh now why would that be a good thing because that new heart of flesh is going to be inclined to obey god it's going to have the the, the law of god written on its heart you can read in proverbs this idea of writing things on your heart and and the the idea is is not just memorization but internalizing it in such a way that we love it we love it that parallel passage in ezekiel 36 ties all of these things together. We are being brought to spiritual life by the, the new covenant. The heart of stone, it hated God and His commands. It was dead. The heart of flesh loves God, loves His commands, and, and, and that person therefore has life. The heart of flesh is the kind of heart that Jesus had. It's a heart that says, my food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. 
The new covenant, it promises to to put God's law in our minds and to write them on our hearts. And that is not just a promise to make us aware of them, but but it is a promise to, to make us love them and do them. People in the old covenant were well aware of God's law. Many of these people had the entire Pentateuch memorized. That did nothing to lead them to obey those things. The new covenant does something different. It's not just awareness of God's laws in our minds and our hearts, but love for them, a desire to do them. And so a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is, is not that, that one expected obedience and the other doesn't expect obedience. Anyone who thinks that new covenant believers are not expected to obey, they have not read the New Testament. A key difference between the old and the new is that with the new covenant... That obedience is a divine work. It's a divine work. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 reads this way. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. And we've re- when we read that in Ephesians chapter 2, our minds should go back to, to Jeremiah 31, to this great promise of the old Uh, in the Old Testament of the New Covenant, this promise that that our hearts would be inclined toward obedience. And what Paul's writing in Ephesians 2.10 doesn't indicate that we, as as partakers of the New Covenant, that we're robots, but rather we are given life which changes our desires such that we want to obey and we can obey. Now, how might we then cling to and rejoice in the new covenant. Here, here's one, one way. It's by delighting in and obeying God's word. By delighting in and obeying God's word. The new covenant believer should be eager to consume the word of God and zealous to obey it. In fact, listen to what Paul writes in Titus 2 regarding the work of Christ in the gospel. This is Titus 2.14. He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. As a result of the new covenant, we should love God's law. We should delight to conform our character and conduct to God's law, not in order to gain blessings, but because we already have gained blessings that have been given to us because of the Gospel. Somebody who has... No desire to be conformed to the image of Christ. That that is a person who should have no assurance that they are partakers of the new covenant. Because the, the new covenant changes the heart so that it wants to obey and is able to obey. Now, let me clarify something. It, it, it may be that there are some among us this morning genuine partakers of the new covenant but, but we are stuck in a particular pattern of, of sin. And, and we don't know how to break that pattern. But we want to. And that, that's, that's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant gives us that want to. And though we may not know how to yet, we want it. Now, if you're in that situation, and, and you would say, I, I am stuck in a pattern of sin today, and, and it grieves me. And I, I want to change. I want to obey God. I just, I need help getting out of this, this ditch that I'm in, so to speak. If, if that's the situation that you're in, get onto our website, go to the sign-ups page, and click on Coffee with a Counselor. This does not sign you up to a lifetime of meeting with somebody, but it is, it is a meeting with someone to answer questions that you have about dealing with this sin issue. Now, it may be that after talking with a counselor, you, you, you decide, I, I actually need more help than this one coffee meeting is going to provide. And, and that, that counselor could meet with you for, for several times, a couple months maybe, whatever it takes. But you will get the help that you need. If, if you're a partaker of the new covenant, you will want help and you'll be eager to obey. A second thing that the, the new covenant does is that it establishes covenant fellowship. It establishes covenant fellowship. Continuing in verse 10, he writes, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
That, that's a sentence that we find over and over in the, the Old Testament, picturing a reversal of the great problem that we have, which is separation from God because of our own rebellion. When God says, I will be their God, they will be my people. That is a picture of what the gospel does to people who are dead in their trespasses and sins. It's, it speaks of a close, exclusive relationship. God alone will be God of the people of the new covenant. And Christians alone will be the people of God. You know, we, we hear a lot in our culture that, that we are all children of God. And I do believe that there's great biblical evidence that God loves all of His creation. But it is undeniable if we are, we are honest about the Scriptures. And if we, if we just take the plain reading of the text as truth, it is the case that God has a special covenant love for His own people. And those people, according to the New Testament, are the church composed of all those Jew and Gentile who have trusted in Christ alone to save them from the wrath to come. For God to be our God is for us to worship Him alone, to keep ourselves from false gods, to love and serve Him only. And for the church, for you, for you to be His people means that, that, that He will provide everything you need, including perseverance through this difficult life unto eternal life. So what might be a way for us to, to think of this problem and, and this, this promise, I'm sorry, and to live in light of it, to cling to it and to rejoice in it? We might do that by enjoying regular fellowship with God, giving Him our adoration and service, trusting Him with our concerns. There are a number of things that are incompatible with, with believing this promise. One, one, one thing that's incompatible with, with a life that is lived in light of this promise is to say anything like this, Lord, I know what You require of me, but on this one thing, You can't have it. We cannot believe God when He says and embrace this, this promise, I will be their God, they will be My people, while withholding something from God. To say something like that to God, but I know what you want, but you can't have it. That is to say, you are not my God. I worship something else. And, and that could look like a number of different things. It could look, look like obsession with something other than God. It could look like a habitual indulgence in a pet sin. But it is incompatible with saying, He is my God and I am His people. Another thing that's incompatible with God being our God and, and our being His people is worry. Incompatible with this. W worry about your needs going unmet. Worry about the future. Worry says the God of the Bible is not my God and or it says I am not His people. God of the Bible protects, cares for, and provides for His people in the most ultimate ways. To worry is to say that's not my God. My God doesn't do those things. Where he can also say, the God of the Bible, He is God and, and, and He does do those things for His people, but, but I'm not His people. He won't care for me like He does for His covenant people. Worry is compatible with, I will be their God. They will be my people. To believe that promise is to say, I worship God alone and the one true God meets all my needs. What a wonderful promise. Third thing that the new covenant does is that it creates a regenerate covenant community. It creates a regenerate covenant community. Verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his brother, and I'm sorry, each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. And this, this at times trips people up a little bit. They might, they might even look at what I'm doing right now and say, isn't this exactly what you're doing? You're encouraging us to know the Lord? Not in the sense that, that He is talking about here. Know Him in the biblical covenantal sense. 
No, no one says that with biblical knowledge, understanding rightly what this means. Nobody says that to somebody who's already in the New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, you had people who were physically circumcised and who were members of that covenant because of the circumcision. They were members of that covenant community, but they were not regenerate. That is, they were not spiritually alive. To go back to our, our, our first illustration this morning, you had some people on the train. Some of them were alive, but most of them were dead. All just riding around life together. And so you had people in, in the covenant who did not know God, did not love Him. They hated Him habitually and gleefully, rebelled against Him. They were spiritually dead and members of the old covenant. The prophets themselves were, were prime examples of what he's talking about here. This thing of saying to covenant members, hey, hey, wake up! Know the Lord! Turn from your sin! Be, be circumcised not merely in your flesh, but in your heart. Love the Lord and obey. The prophets said that to people who were actual members of the Old Covenant. There's none of that in the New Covenant because everyone is regenerate. They have been given spiritual life from the dead. Everyone in the New Covenant has repented and trusted in Jesus. Now some might, might, might ask the question, but, but, but aren't there false believers in the church? I would say there are false believers in the professing church, but those false believers, they are not in the covenant. By definition, New Covenant members are people with new hearts, the law written on them, people who know God. What are ways that we might embrace that promise and live in light of it? There could be many of them, and again, I encourage you to discuss those things with one another. But let, let me give you just one. One way to live in light of this reality. The fundamental means of meaningful participation in the life of the church is church membership. Church membership is so fundamental that a multitude of New Testament commands can't be rightly understood and cannot be fully obeyed without it. And in, in that way, it's, it's very similar to the doctrine of the Trinity. You will not find any passage in the New Testament that directly teaches the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. But... You can't understand the New Testament without it. The, the Bible repeatedly assumes the doctrine of the Trinity as it teaches everything else. So also, church membership. You cannot make sense of New Testament commands, many of them, those commands for the church, without some concept of, of formal church membership. And, and that means that, that you cannot fully obey all of, it, all of its commands without some form of, of church membership. If, if you've not been around here for very long and this is kind of a new idea to you, I'd encourage you to get on our website. In 2020, we, we preached a series on this, on this idea of membership. The, the series title was Membership and Immersion. So you can find those messages on our website if you'd like to, to, to learn more about this. But if you haven't joined a church, celebrate the new covenant by formally declaring to, to a local body of believers, I have followed Christ and I want to participate fully in the community of the saints. Do that and then do life with those people. A fourth blessing of the new covenant is that it provides forgiveness of sin. It provides forgiveness of sin. Verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. Look just at the, the first word there. For. That, that's an important word because it indicates to us that this idea that God has forgiven our sin, this is not just the fourth in a series of four, but rather this blessing is the reason for what came before it. This blessing is, is, is why we have the others. We know the Lord because we've been forgiven. Sin separated us from God 
from, from the earliest days of human existence. You go back to Genesis chapter 3 and read all about it. Sin has separated, it, separated man from God since the very beginning. It was a wall preventing us from enjoying God the way that we were designed. But the new covenant promises that God will be merciful toward our iniquities. He'll remember our sins no more. That, that's the longhand way of saying that God will forgive us. Now, if you are a student of the Bible, that should provoke a natural question. Or it should, rehear- it should prompt the rehearsing of a blessed truth. How can God do that? How can God forgive sinners? The Bible is very clear about, about God and His character and that what that means for His demand for justice. Isaiah 30 verse 18 reads, Yahweh is a God of justice. Job 34.12 reads, The Almighty will not pervert justice. Proverbs 17.15 He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. What, what, what this is saying is that, that God's very character is repelled by the idea of people not being rewarded appropriately for their good deeds, and He is repelled by the idea of people not being recompensed for their evil deeds. Both of those things together mean that God is perfectly just. And it just so happens that we live in a world of humanity where everyone is over here at their conception. Liable to God's judgment because of our deadness in sin and our active rebellion against Him. By virtue of His holy character, He's perfectly just. He rewards the righteous. He punishes the guilty. God punishes every sin. That is the inescapable truth of His own Word. He punishes every sin. So the question then is obvious. How then can He forgive sin? The very sin that makes us guilty and therefore deserving of punishment. How can He remove that? Not bringing justice. How can He do that? He can do that because He punished that sin in another. Jesus. All who repent and trust in Christ, their sin was punished in Christ on the cross. He suffered in their place. All others are are punished themselves on the last day. The cross of Jesus Christ is how Paul can write about about the church and and about God that He is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. He is a justifier because He imputes the sins of the believing to Christ. And He is just because He punishes those sins in Christ. Psalm 103 verse 10 reads, He does not deal with us according to our sin, nor repay us according to our iniquities. When we read that in Psalm 103.10, we should think to ourselves, He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not repay us according to our iniquities because He dealt with Christ according to our sins. He repaid Christ according to our iniquities. Now, how can it be that God remembers our sin no more? What a peculiar way of describing forgiveness. How can an omniscient God forget something? Well, he can't. He can't forget something. And, and if we look closely, the text doesn't say that he forgets our sin. It says that he does not remember them. And that's, that's different. He does not actively call them to mind. And, and in my view, that is better than a passive forgetting. An intentional non-recollection is God choosing, making the decision, I will not ever think of this again. What an amazing thing. He has graciously, purposefully decided that He will not call to mind any sin punished in Christ. It's been paid for and that guilt is gone. 
What are some ways that we might live in light of that? I'll, I'll give you just one. You can consider this further later. If God, against whom you sinned so many times, if He has punished that sin in Jesus so fully that He can forgive you, meaning that He promises not to recall that sin ever again, what right do you have to recall that sin? What right do you have to get out and play with guilt that has been washed away by Jesus? It suggests that, that we do not have that right. We do not have the right to act as if we are still guilty. We do not have the right to functionally question the sufficiency of Christ's suffering. When Christ suffered for that sin, it was gone. Buried, it is in the grave, it is no longer before the face of God. Rejoice in the new covenant by enjoying a cleansed conscience. Believing that before God you are, you are clean, you are washed by the blood of Jesus. And therefore you can enter the presence of God with joy. Just as the author has called us to do over and over. Draw near to the throne of grace. Draw near Enter inside the, 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 the holy of holies because of what Christ has done to cover your sin with His blood. Now look at verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, He makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. As Jeremiah was writing that prophecy, the old covenant was ready to vanish away. It was, it was about to vanish away. But as the author quotes Jeremiah, on this side of the cross, the old covenant has vanished away. It should be clear already and definitely will be by the time we get to the end of the letter. The coming of Christ has caused the old covenant to vanish. It is now no longer an agreement between God and anyone. No one. Not Jew, not Gentile, no one is currently a partaker of the Old Covenant. And I would ask you, given the things that we've seen about the New Covenant this morning, why would you want to? Why would you want to go to something and place your, your hope in it and your, your faith and your eternity? Why would you want it to rest on something that only shows you to be dead? Offers you no way to go from death to life. Why would you leave life to go back to death? That is the implicit question that the author of Hebrews is, is asking his recipients. Why would you leave the new covenant to go to the old covenant? Life can only be had, only be had through the new covenant in Christ's blood. Don't turn to anything else if you want life. Don't, don't live like those who are under the Old Covenant and don't adopt any man-made system of, the, of belief that can do nothing to make the dead alive. The only hope for the sinner in sin, the fallen man, is to turn to Christ in faith. And that's how you can become a member of the New Covenant. It's, it's possible that, that hearing these things this morning, you, you have recognized in yourself You've recognized, I have no desire. I have lived with no desire to obey God. I have hated any kind of restraint on my behavior for as long as I can remember. I hated it even as I walked in this place this morning. I have hated the law of God. That would be an indication that you are not a member of the new covenant. If that's the case, there's fantastic news for you this morning. And that is... You are still physically alive. You have not yet met your maker and judge. And you can enter the new covenant by turning from your sin. Turning from that wickedness that you've embraced all your days. And turning toward Jesus. Saying to Him, I trust only in You. I know I cannot cover my own sin. I cannot make myself right with God. I cannot change my own heart. I need Jesus to do these things. I trust Him to do these things. I will serve this Jesus for the rest of my life. That is how you can enter.
the new covenant this morning. Turn from your sin and trust in Him. It's possible that you have more questions about that. And if that's the case, we would love to talk to you about that. Any of the elders can do that. Pastor John is the one who read the the opening scripture for us this morning and did the announcements. Pastor Jason led us in worship. I would love to talk to you. But you're, you're surrounded by people who could answer your questions. So don't leave this place this morning not knowing how you can enter the new covenant. It's the most important thing you'll ever consider. God has put before us death and life, curse and blessing. Choose life by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, what a blessing it is to to be partakers of the new covenant. Those of us who have turned from sin and trusted in in Jesus, who have have, we've experienced the reality of this new heart promised in the new covenant. Lord, help us to revel in these things. And and would you please put all of our lives in context, in the context of this new covenant. We formerly were dead, now we are alive in Christ. We look forward to His coming again that we might be with Him forever, with you forever. Father, I pray that in the coming moments as as we are silent before you, that you would bring to mind even then other ways that we might live in light of the new covenant. And would you provoke conversation among us today in the coming days as we think about these things? Those who who love the new covenant, who are partakers, how should they live? Would you help us to think through those things and to do those things? Father, we pray for all present who are outside that covenant, who are dead in their trespasses and sins even as we sit here. Pray, Father, that you would bring them to glorious life today moving them to turn from their sin and to trust in Jesus alone. Please impress upon them the the truth, the reality of the things that they've heard, so that they will say, I see that Christ is my only hope, and I surrender to Him in faith. Would you do that for those among us dead in their sin, that we might all worship you together in the new covenant, Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.